It's good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. If you didn't know this, we are making our way through Mark's gospel. That's what we do here at Covenant. We go through a book of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, slowly making our way through, hoping to understand uh, that book in the fullness of its context, understanding how the Holy Spirit is working uh, in the personality of the author. And thus, we are in Mark's gospel. We are beginning this morning, Mark chapter 8. Little theologians, very uh, good having you here as well. As you listen to this sermon, I'd like for you to draw a picture of Jonah. You heard uh, Elder Coffey read that passage to us about Jonah going into the city of Nineveh, a large city, and just one man. I'd like for you to draw that. But as you draw one man going into a large foreign city, draw that one man handing out bread. Jonah didn't do that. But our passage this morning is about bread. So I'm kind of making a story up. But draw a picture of a man going into a large city and handing out bread. Our passage this morning is about the feeding of the 4,000, and it's in Mark chapter 8. But before we read this passage, if you would please join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, unlock this word in our hearts in such a way that uh, by this word you enable us to see how greatly in need of the bread of Jesus we are. Would you do that for those who are not in a saving relationship with Jesus, but would you do that for us who are, that we would be reminded of the greatness of salvation, its freeness and its grace, and the willingness of Jesus to save us and to be with us. Would you do this by your Holy Spirit in his name? Amen. So Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? He asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dominutha. This is the word of our Lord. Well, it should be that some of this sounds just a little bit familiar. It ought to sound familiar. 
This is the feeding of a great crowd, and this is an event that seems as though it's married to, similar to the event that we've seen already of Jesus feeding a large crowd. That's the feeding of the 5,000 that happened in Mark chapter 6. And now many commentators will say that the, the view among those who uh, have, uh, who, those who are critical scholars uh, of the Bible, that is those scholars whom we normally call liberal scholars, the, the, the universal opinion among them, according to the scholars that I actually trust, is that this miracle is not a distinct miracle, but rather it's the retelling of the miracle that we have already read. That if there was a miracle of Jesus at all, so say these liberal critics, there was, well, a miracle retold a number of times spread out to make it look bigger than it actually was because it actually wasn't a miracle at all. Now, that's a critical opinion of what's happening here, the feeding of 5,000, apparently on the heels of the feeding, uh, or the feeding of 4,000, the heels of feeding of 5,000. But I need you to be assured that I believe this is a separate healing ministry of Jesus. This feeding of the 4,000 is a ministry of Jesus that is distinct from the feeding of the 5,000, and it is indeed another miraculous miracle of our Lord. There's numerous ways to defend this view. I'll state just a few and then uh, dive in. Uh, This event here is different from the previous event in that this one is centered among Gentiles. Gentiles are the crowd in view with this passage. Remember, Jesus, he is in the region of the Decapolis, those uh, ten cities on the southeastern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And not only that, but the language that's used to describe this miracle is distinct language. It's uh, different than the language that is used to describe the feeding of the 5,000. And the details here are different. They might be small details, but there are details here that would indicate that this is a distinct event in the ministry of Jesus. And then finally... There are additional details that we learn about the person and work of Jesus that arise in this miracle that didn't arise in the miracle before. Here, there's more teaching of Jesus, not teaching necessarily by his words. Remember, as he goes into Gentile territory in this stage of his ministry, much of his teaching is teaching in action rather than in words. But even though that's the case, this scene teaches us just a little bit more about the majesty of Jesus, almost as if uh, this is a a further commentary on the person of Jesus. Mark Again, getting his information from the Apostle Peter, Mark is telling us more and more about who Jesus is in this second miraculous feeding of a large crowd. And we might also ask if, well, if, these, if this event is really the same event uh, as the first one, which it isn't, it's distinct, but we also might ask this question, why does this matter? What does this matter to me here in 2021, Jesus doing something miraculous before a crowd for a second time? What does it matter? And it matters because we are a lot like this crowd. 
as Jesus feeds and saves this crowd, we're to see in this crowd ourselves. Those in the crowd, they have this present need. Those in the crowd, they are unable to satisfy that need. And even if they try to satisfy that need, uh, they will become weary and faint and very likely perish. Well, that's us. And I believe that as, this, as we follow this passage, we'll see a few applications at the end that apply to those who are not believers, that applies to those who are leaders in the church, but there are, there's an application here for those who are followers of Jesus. Even you and I who profess faith in Jesus, we are present in this crowd. What this passage tells us real quickly before I dive in is that no person is beyond the reach of the great compassion of Jesus. No person is beyond the reach of the great compassion of Jesus. And Mark begins in the first three verses by telling us about a doomed people. That's verses 1 through 3. And then there's a shift in verse 4. And then Mark begins to uh, tell us uh, not so much about the doomed people, but rather the powerless disciples. That's verses 4 and 5. And then, beginning at verse 6, all the way to the end of our passage... Mark tells us what he really wants to tell us. He tells us about a compassionate Savior. Doomed crowd, powerless leaders, and a compassionate Savior. The setup for this verse is that a great crowd we see there in verse 1 has uh, gathered. And not only have they gathered, they have no food. And Mark tells us that rather dramatically. There's no food. They're without food. And Jesus, uh, what he does first is he actually calls his disciples and he is going to teach them. He's going to teach them about himself, but he's actually going to teach them about the crowd. The very first words that Jesus has for his disciples are words about himself. You see this gathering of a great crowd. Uh, You get more than a hint of the desperation of this crowd. They're a crowd and they have no food. And yet... The first thing that Jesus says is not something about the crowd, but something about who he is. Do you see that in verse 2? I have compassion on the crowd. If the crowd were foremost in your eyes, you have to know that the construction in the Greek of verse 2 is such that it's the compassion of Jesus that's emphasized in this sentence. I have compassion on the crowd. His inward parts, so to speak, uh, yearn for the crowd. Uh, He has empathy for the crowd, pity for the crowd. He's describing who he is. Luke, in his gospel, he's going to reserve this word for compassion for very specific uses. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know this story. A man is robbed and stripped and beaten, and a priest and a Levite, they pass him on the other side of the street. But it's a good Samaritan who what? Who has compassion on the man. And he crosses the street to bind up his wounds, to pour oil and wine on him, to put him on his own animal and to care for him overnight and even beyond. Compassion. Jesus says that's what he has. This is not a mere feeling of sentimentality. Uh, In the the word itself, it's not present, but in the entire uh, context of what Jesus is about to do, this is not mere sentimentality. 
His heart is about to explode into action to do something about what he sees. And what does he see? Well, he sees a crowd that is doomed in a couple of different ways. You see what Mark tells us in verse 2. They've been with Jesus now three days, and they have nothing to eat. Nothing to eat. They're hungry. But it's not just that they have nothing to eat in the present. They themselves have no power to rectify this problem. So verse 2 goes on and tells us not only uh, is there nothing for them to eat, many of them are from far away. And just to get home, which is where their food would be, just to get home is going to lead to certain collapse and perhaps even death. You see, there's two kinds of problems that they have. They're hungry in the present, and they have no solution to, uh, to rectify that problem. They're needy without any way forward. Now, Jesus, well, he always sees things that we miss, doesn't he? Recall when Jesus looked at the crowd uh, at the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6. Remember that you and I, we would just look out at a mass of humanity. But Jesus, he looked out at the mass of humanity and he said they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he does that here too, doesn't he? The disciples are looking out at at a mass of humanity. But Jesus actually describes what their real need is. They're needy in the present, and they have no means to problem-solve that need. Remember when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, I told you that Christianity does this all the time, that Christianity actually reassesses us, tells us who we are. That's part of the offense of Christianity, not merely the the divinity of Jesus Christ, but the very authority of Scripture to tell me who I am, to in fact describe to me what my identity is. A great offense of Christianity. And that's what's happening here, because this is how Christianity works. The Bible tells us who we are as human beings. God himself created us. He has the authority to tell us who we are, our need and our inability to service that need. The Bible tells us that, but if you're offended by that, at least hold that intention for a moment. The Bible tells us that God created us. He ought to know who we are. Christianity tells us that without Jesus Christ, we are walking dead, that we are under the penalty of death, that no one is righteous, no, not one. Even if you feel righteous without Jesus, you're under the penalty of death. The sentence has been pronounced. And not only this, there's nothing that you can do to save yourself. No work of the law will justify us in God's sight. No work of our own can save us. And no person, no family, no nation can save you either. Only God can, and he does so through Jesus. You can see this outlined in Romans chapter 3. You can go there this afternoon. But Christianity assesses who we are. And Jesus, he assesses the crowd. And he notices that they are needy in the present. And he notices that they have no ability to heal themselves in the future. They will grow faint, and they will uh, 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 fall in the desert before they make it home. Now, now here really is the question for us. 
You may not think this is the question of the passage, but let me tell you what the question of the passage is. This compassion of Jesus, is it enough for them? We have a crowd. Jesus has taught us to understand that crowd. And Jesus told us about his own heart, his own compassion. But the question for us is, is it enough for them? And if Jesus' compassion is enough for them, is that compassion enough for us? Hold that in your mind as we move on to uh, look at verses 4 and 5. We move from the doom of the crowd to the powerlessness of church leadership. After hearing Jesus' interpretation of the problem before them, the disciples, they, they have no reply, do they? There's this problem, but their only solution seems to be to brainstorm. You see, look at verse 4. They answered him. They answered him. It's a, it's a strange word. They answered him. Because what follows then is a question. They, they go to Jesus, and the only answer that they have for Jesus is actually a question. Don't we dislike people who do that? They answer questions in the form of a question. How is that helpful? Well, the disciples are beside themselves. They actually don't have a solution. And so they say to him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Just notice in verse 4 the structure of their question. The, the focus for them is the number of people. These people, how can, how can one feed these people? It's a large crowd, Jesus. And we might be able to say their next focus has to do with the food, feeding them with bread. Bread hasn't come into the conversation yet, but here it is. To feed these people with actual bread, it seems beyond their imagination. And then they focus on the location, don't they? Here in this desolate place. Well, they don't answer Jesus with a question. They answer Jesus with a multitude of questions, a crowd of questions. How will this happen? Now, here's a great problem, isn't it? Because have they forgotten what Jesus has already done? You know, this is the primary reason why scholars think that there are not two miracles. If there's uh, any miracle at all, there's just one miracle, and this is a retelling of that one miracle. It's because surely the disciples, they would remember. And perhaps they have, but what have we been told about these disciples? They have hard hearts. They see their will more clearly than they see, they see the will of Jesus. And so it could be they do remember, but they're hard-hearted. Surely he can't do it again. I suspect it's more like this. That what they're saying to Jesus is they're actually uh, laying this before Jesus as he is the only one who can do because he has done this before. They don't challenge Jesus to do uh, what he has done before. Instead, they submit to him. They know their own inability. They know his great ability. And one scholar says really what they're saying to Jesus is, Jesus, would you do what you intend to do? This entire matter is in your will. If it be your will to do what you've done before, so be it. And really what they're asking Jesus is, Jesus, how will your great compassion unfold? How will it roll out? You see, the disciples know that it's not their compassion that matters. It's the compassion of Jesus that matters. Now, I want to stop here in verses 4 and 5 just to talk a little bit about what, what uh, pastoral ministry is. Pastoral ministry is not about assuming the will of Jesus for God's people apart from what Jesus says about God's people. 
There's something here about Christian leadership such that Christian leaders are called to fall on their faces before the king and to submit to his will, to intercede for the people, and to only apply to the people that which the king applies to his people. Now, you're going to see that, but right now, notice the disciples are powerless, just as powerless as the crowd is full of doom. But there's a compassionate Savior And we're beginning to understand more and more about the Savior, and he shows up in verse 6 doing a great deal. And beginning at verse 6, notice who it is who is at work. Jesus, he takes the seven loaves. He gives thanks. He gives these loaves to the disciples. He blesses the fish. He gives instructions about the fish. He is very, very active. I've just called out all of the active verbs of one man, the compassionate Savior and he's at work. And the disciples, notice what they're doing. They're at work in a very different way. They're listening to Jesus, and they're following his commands. But what Mark tells us that the disciples do is they set things before the crowd. Twice in verse 6, once in verse 7. What the disciples are doing is entirely different. Jesus, he's active. The disciples, they're simply setting the work of Jesus, the activity of Jesus before the crowd. And so you have this worker and you have these disciples who are setting before the crowd the work of Jesus alone. And then you have the crowd and the crowd is doing nothing. The crowd, in fact, are told to sit down, be seated, do nothing. And yet, look what happens in verse 8. They ate and they were satisfied. Jesus does the work. He's the compassionate Savior. The disciples, they set before the world, before the crowd, that very work. That's all they do. Set before the world the work of the compassionate one. And the world does nothing but eats and is satisfied. Now, we need to see in this huge hints of God's saving plan everywhere. Jesus, he performs the work of God, serving God's will, serving God's plan for redemption. This is what Jesus does. You can't work for your salvation. Jesus can and has worked for your salvation. He's performing the will of God to satisfy the purposes of God. You can see that in this passage, that even as as Jesus is doing this, he keeps uh, stepping back and deferring to God. He takes the bread and he breaks the bread. Who does he thank for the bread? He thanks God. This is what he does at the Passover meal. He thanks God for what he has given, even thanking God for his body that will be broken on the cross. In a way, he teaches the crowd as well. He thanks God for the bread, but there's a different word in this passage with reference to the fish. He thanks God for the bread, but he actually says a blessing over the fish. Imagine this. There's actually a body of teaching that Jesus pronounces over this fish. Why why might he speak loudly as he is pronouncing this blessing over the fish? It may be, one scholar says, that he's instructing the crowd, these Gentiles, 
They don't know very much about Jesus. And Jesus, as he pronounces a blessing on this fish, uh, or the fish is, uh, Jesus is actually saying to them, as Paul says to the Athenians, he says, every life and breath that you have is a gift from God. Everything that you have is from the one true God. And Jesus, he seems to be saying that to the crowds. But note this, he's a compassionate savior. And because he does his work, the disciples, they have something to set before the nations. And as the disciples set the work of Jesus before the nations, the nations have an opportunity to be satisfied in Jesus. We learn even that the seven loaves, they become seven baskets of broken pieces. The satisfaction in God's grace is an abundant satisfaction. There's food for more. And then in verse 9, what does Jesus do but sends them away? Does this sound familiar? When Jesus was describing this crowd, he describes their doom in this way, that they, that they are hungry and they have no ability to feed themselves. And what Jesus does is he feeds them in the present, but as he sends them away, they are sent well satisfied. They have no need for anything beyond Jesus. And as he sends them away, they have no chance of fainting. The doom, it was turned into lasting strength. The crowd and the disciples and the compassionate Savior, these things pushed together in this story tell us three things to do as we go forward. I want you to listen to this very, uh, very pointedly. The leading application of this passage is actually to those who don't believe in Jesus. And if that's you this morning, you need to understand how the Bible understands you. The Bible says that you are under a penalty, you are under a curse, that you are represented by the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, and there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. As you strive for peace, as you strive for happiness, that striving is nothing more than proof that God has made you to strive for peace and happiness but he has also made you to desire him as the only object for that peace and happiness. You're under a penalty. You cannot save yourself. You're doomed if you stay. You're doomed if you try and travel. You must have Jesus, and he can save you now, and he can save you for all eternity. But there's also an application here, I believe, for any of those who are involved in uh, leadership in the church. Notice what the leaders of the church do in this passage. They set before the people the work of someone else. This is not true just for pastors or elders and deacons. This is true for anyone who is involved in church leadership. We lead according to the leadership of King Jesus. That is all the authority that we have to practice in our leadership. He does the work of salvation. And anyone vested in leadership in the life of the church, they set that work before others. It may be rejected. It may be received. But that's the limit of our leadership, setting before the world and others the work of Jesus. Remember I also said that there's an application for us just as ordinary Christian people. We need to be reminded that the life that we live is a life that came to us at a price that he died on the cross for our salvation. He fed us with his own body and with his own blood. 
will he also not lead us into the future? We need to be reminded that we aren't saved so that we might then be the masters of our own sanctification. He saved me in the past, and now it's my job to carry this forward. He saved you into the pa- in the past that he might lead you to his place for you in the future. Do you ever think that the one who saved you has now turned you over to your own devices? He hasn't. You will not walk forward and grow weary and faint. The one who has converted you is the one who will sanctify you, the one who will bring you to completion. Never doubt that, Christian. Well, those are applications here from this passage, application to those who don't believe, the crowd, application to those involved in church leadership, the disciples, and an application to the ordinary Christian. Remember, the one who has saved you is with you for all eternity. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we do thank you for your speaking to us in your word. We thank you for the simplicity of this scene. For those who are not believers, would they understand their great need and would they understand that they haven't the power to satisfy that need, that only Jesus can? And Father, for those who are leaders, even the leaders here in this place, our pastors and elders and deacons, would you humble them? Would you remind them that they have but one task set before the world and the church, the work of Jesus? And then finally, Father, would you encourage those who are weary? Would you forgive those who are in faith, thinking that the work that you have performed for them is a work in the distant past and not in the immediate future. You will never leave us. We thank you for this text in Jesus' name. Amen.